Amen. Our God is our Redeemer, and He has called us to walk as the redeemed, to live as the redeemed, to be the, the, the church that He died, that He gave His own blood for. Amen? We're going to, we'll, we'll, this will all come together, I pray, I hope, as we continue into this next section of Scripture, as we go through these letters written to the churches in Revelation. And we are in Revelation chapter 2. We are looking at verses 12 through 17. You can open up your Bible app and find all of those things there. If you go to the app, all you have to do is open it up, go to the little button at the bottom that says media, and then touch on these sermon notes. And it will take you right there. You can follow along. There's some fill in the blanks. Uh, you can actually open your own Bible. I encourage you to do that. Bring your Bible and open it up and read it. Use it that way. Um, or we'll put them up on the screen. We want to help you be able to follow along to see what the Word of God has to say. So we're going to be looking at the city of Pergamum. Or some of the versions will say Pergamos. Pergamum was a great city. It was a city that was built on a, on a I mean, they called it a mountain. Uh, the elevation was about a thousand feet, so it was well below like where we are. So uh, we, it's hard to look at it as a mountain. But in that area, it was a, that a thousand feet elevation was a very high place. In fact, it was called the Acropolis, which means high place or high point. And Pergamum was the Acropolis. It was the Acropolis in that area. It was the high place in which uh, uh, the the in the whole region could be seen. And so. When the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, the, the gospel spread as the disciples spread. The people were scattered, and much of early Christianity moved to this place, what we call now modern-day Turkey. And so much of the early days of Christianity happened in these cities that we are going through here, all of these cities, in, in the, where is now the region of, of Turkey. Ephesus was there. This is where Pergamum was. And, and Ephesus and Pergamum, both of them, were extremely important locations because much of the, the Christianity, I mean, spread around because they were missionary centers that were sending people to all sorts of different places. So this city was very strategic in its location. It was very important in its purpose. And in the day in which we're, we're talking about, in the day in which this letter was written, there was about 100,000 people or so. A lot of debate exactly what the, the number is. But there was somewhere around 100,000 people that lived in this very affluent city. They had an amphitheater that was there, an amphitheater that in that day, it sat about 10,000 people. They made these gigantic amphitheaters in these places. But the high point in this place, you could see the entire valley. So from the, the high point of Pergamum, you could see everywhere. And they had fortified walls that were around the city. So this place, because of the way in which you could see and the fortified walls, it was a very, very safe place secure place for people. And uh, in fact, it was so secure. They say Alexander the Great, because of the security, and uh, all, Alexander the Great actually hid billions of dollars of gold in the city of Pergamum. So it was very secure, and it was a very wealthy place. So the affluent would live up on the hill. They lived in this place where the, they called it the Acropolis, and the, they lived on the top of the mountain. And again, they had just, you know, kind of like today, they had the beautiful views, 
but they also had the added security that came with the place in which they were. The commoners lived more down the hill. They were kind of in the valley. They were in these, these places that would create villages, and generally they would only go up the hill if there was some kind of big event that was being held at the uh, Acropolis, which again happened quite often. There was in the city of Pergamum, and just to give you some, I want to give you some background of the city so that we can see how important and how um, important this letter is that was sent to the city and what was going on at that time. In the city of Pergamum, there was the temple of Zeus. There, There was an altar there to the god Zeus in Pergamum. There was also then at the top of the, at the, of the Acropolis, at the very highest point, there was a, the emperor's image. There was a, a carven image of the emperor. He was worshipped as God at that point, and his image was there. There was also the temple of Dionysus. Dionysus was the goddess of wine. That's what a lot of them said. So there was a lot of partying, a lot of drinking, a lot of carousing. There were a lot of, in the city, brothels, and there were shows and entertainment. There was a, you know, a lot of music and a lot of different things that, you know, we'll, we'll see and hopefully realize how influential it was in the city. Pergamum had a lot of worship. There was a lot of different forms of worship, a lot of things that they were worshiping. Zeus was worshiped there. The Roman emperor was worshiped there. The goddess Dionysus was worshiped there. The goddess Athena was worshiped there. In fact, they had more than 50 gods and goddesses that were worshiped there, and sacrifices were continually being made to these gods and goddesses, and this was the way that the city was. Pergamum was known for their, the entertainment. They were known for their parties. They were known for prostitution. They were known for brothels. It was a party town. As I was reading about it and doing some studying, it reminded me of what Las Vegas is like. I I wonder if they had the same kind of statement. What happens in Pergamum stays in Pergamum. (laughs) But that's kind of, you know, what was going on in this place. There was also another place, and there was an altar in this place. It was called the Asclepius. Asclepius, which means healing. It was basically a healing center, but it was one of the first, it was honestly one of the very first actual spas, like what we know today that spas would be. And inside of the, uh, the Asclepius, I practiced that word a lot, because <laughs> inside of the Asclepius was, they had places where there was dream therapy, they had people that would come. I mean, dream therapy was there before Freud even you know, thought about it. They were doing it. They had inside of this area another auditorium that seated about 3,500 people where they would come for lectures and they would come to hear what these different people had to say. They had underground sleep chambers where they were doing, minute, you know, trying to get people you know, sleep help. Some things we still see today. They had water therapy. They had music therapy. They had all sorts of alternative healing opportunities for people. But you know what the symbol was for the the area that's called the Asclepius? The symbol was a serpent wrapped around a staff. That's where the medical symbol came that's still used today of a serpent wrapped around a staff. I did not know that before this. Again, it's very interesting biblically as well. 
We'll talk more about that. But, but it, it was also in this place, a, a, a spring that they believed was the fountain of youth. So they, they believed they had found the fountain of youth and, uh, and people came from far and wide to come and to be a part of that. So again, there's a lot more to this. I tried to pick and choose to give you an overview of what was going on in this area and what it was like at the time that this letter was written because that was the history. And inside of that history, into that place of culture comes Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to the church that's inside of this city that we're, ch- we're talking about. And first and foremost, let me say that it really does show us that Jesus pays attention. Jesus pays attention. He knows what's going on. So what we have, you know, just briefly, John. John was Jesus' beloved disciple. John was one that Jesus loved. He was the only remaining apostle that was still alive. All the rest of them had been uh, uh, martyred. They'd been killed, and John is still alive. John is like a little brother to Jesus. John loves Jesus, and Jesus loved John. In fact, from the cross, Jesus said to John, please take care of my mom. You say that to somebody that you're close to. And the Pharisees tried to kill him. They tried, they tried to kill him, but he wouldn't die. They tried to boil him in a vat of oil. How do you live after being boiled in a vat of oil? Well, obviously, he, he didn't die. And so I don't know if they just thought, you know what, maybe this is not the right thing to do. Let's just exile him. And so they sent him off to the island of Patmos, where they believe they found the cave that John actually lived in, and John was alive in this cave at the top of the island of Patmos, and it was in that place that Jesus showed up. And John, think about John. He's been boiled in oil. He's been martyred. He's been, uh, you know, they attempted to kill him. And here he is in exile. And now he's away from his church. He's away from the people that he loves, the people that he'd given his life to. And he's off on his own in this island. And he knows that the people that are in his church are being martyred. He knows that they're being killed. He knows they're being hunted down even at times. And here he is. It's on the Lord's day. And what's he doing? He's worshiping. It's a Sunday, it's the the Lord's day, and he's worshiping. And Jesus comes down to visit with John. Church, this is an amazing, magnificent moment. I mean, this only happened a few times in all of the whole New Testament. This is not an ongoing occasion. This was something that was a very special thing. And Jesus comes down, he comes into this cave, and he comes to John in his glorified form, and he begins to give him, speak to him about these letters. He gives him the revelation. And inside of the revelation, there's these seven letters that he gave to John to give to these seven churches. And one of those churches was in the city of Pergamum. And so he's speaking to the church that's inside of this city that we were talking about. Just real quick, just imagine for a moment that Jesus wrote a letter. Jesus himself, I mean, he wrote a letter to our church. I mean, he's ascended, it's been decades, he's in heaven, and and we're going about our business, we're doing what we do, we're saying what we say, we're going through the motions of what we do, and all of a sudden we realize that in this letter that Jesus wrote to us, we really have this revelation that, and I want you to hear me, this is important, that Jesus is really paying attention. Do you know that Jesus 
is paying attention to the church, which we are the church. It means he's paying attention to us. So he knows what we're doing. He knows what we're saying. He knows what we're not doing. He knows what we're not saying. And let me tell you, in this letter, we're going to find this. Uh, he knows all of those things, and he has an opinion about it. So, he brings this word to the church at Pergamum. Revelations chapter 2, starting in verse 12. He says, and to the angel of the church of Pergamum. Now again, I, I, this is one of those common Sentences that we find in every one of these letters that he has assigned each church an angel. So each church has what the Bible calls physical leadership. There are people that he's placed in place to physically lead, but there's also spiritual leaders, angels that have been appointed as ministers and messengers to represent God to the people, to keep and to protect the church, to keep the church from heresy, to keep the, to keep the church on track and to protect them against spiritual attacks. We're going to find out one day how much the angel over the church in Tooele has been keeping and protecting us from demonic attacks. We're going to find out one day that, you know what, God really was at work and he really was keeping and protecting us in that spiritual realm so that we could hear the word of God, so that we could fend off false attacks, so that we could hear the truth of God's word. Because church, ultimately, it's God that governs the church. It's God who's in charge. God's the one who appoints these angels. And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, write this. He said, the words of him who has the two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And again, he says it, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Verse 15, and also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now the Nicolaitans were a cult, and they were a cult that combined Christianity with cultural things. They brought together Christianity and idol worship and brought this together and that's what the Nicolaitans were known for. And inside of that, they brought all sorts of sexual perversions into that form of worship. Therefore, he says, therefore, and so he's saying, this is what's in the church. And he says, verse 16, therefore, repent. Repent. It's a fun word, huh? That got a hearty amen. He says, repent. Because if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. I don't know about you. I don't want God to war against me with the sword of his mouth. We'll talk about what that might mean, but it does not sound like something I want in my future. 
And, uh, and, and so he goes on, and he says in verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So there's a lot in this, and we're going to try to unpack this over the next couple of weeks here. Jesus is speaking to the church at Pergamum that I was describing to you earlier. And Jesus is saying, I know exactly what's going on. Isn't it amazing that in a few short words, Jesus can say, I know exactly what's going on in all of this. But church, let me also say this. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in every church. He knows exactly what's going on in each and every one of our lives. Look, he is not the, I mean, he is risen. He is the ascended, omnipotent God at the very throne of grace. And he sees everything. He sees everyone. He knows everything that's going on. And the church, this church, any church, does not belong to you. It does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to us. Church, it belongs to Jesus. He's the one who purchased it. He's the one who paid a price. He's the only one that could. And so he's the one who purchased it. He's the one who, who honestly, the church belongs to. And inside of this, he pays careful attention to our faithfulness and our unfaithfulness. He pays attention to those things. And, and he does it in every church. And that's important because there are times when we can become a member of a church and be there for so long or we can be a leader at a church for so long. We can be a part of things or we can be a, a tither, a giver. We've been doing this for so long that all of a sudden we begin to think, well, this is my church. I get to say what I do. I get to declare that. I get to, I get to. Ultimately, it's not. It belongs to Jesus. We belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. And because of that, Jesus' evaluation of our behaviors and our beliefs should be the most exceedingly important thing that we consider. What Jesus thinks is more important. Look, what Jesus thinks is more important than what you think. You know why? He, he didn't give us his word and, and do all that he did so that you and I could spend our life trying to conform God's thoughts to ours. And that's what he's telling them in this letter. And the first thing he does, he starts off by understanding, by acknowledging their persecution. He knows what they're going through. He brings them an encouragement in this. He knows there are many of you that have remained faithful in the face of tremendous persecution, attacks, and all sorts of things. And think about the persecution that they would have had in that day. Can you imagine being in an area where there were 50 different gods that were worshipped and it was acceptable for all 50 gods to be worshipped in that area? And you become a Christian and you have to stand up and say in the face of that, um, no, no. No, there's really only one God, and his name is Jesus. That could cause some people to really want to bring persecution against you. And in that day, it made them want to hurt you. And they did. He got resistance from all sorts of different cults, spiritualities, religions, all sorts of stuff. They were also persecuted by the government. 
Because the emperor that in that time was Domitian, and Domitian was a horrible guy. He was a violent guy. He was an ungodly guy. He was a hated guy. He was so hated that even his wife was part of a conspiracy plan to kill him. <laughs> yeah, he, he, was, he was a bad guy. And he had declared himself to be deity. He had declared himself to be Lord, God, and Savior. And so in that day that you would have to come and you were called to come and to offer sacrifices to him, to Domitian, because he had declared himself to be the God above every other God. And in that day, you were allowed to worship other gods, but you could not worship other gods above him. So if you declared him first and foremost supreme God, you could worship all the other gods you wanted as long as Domitian was first and foremost. And if you did not do that, you were oftentimes hunted down, thrown into jail, you're persecuted martyred i mean many were even put to death and again in the face of that the christians then would have to say well no lord god savior sorry Dimithian, but that's jesus and only jesus and there should be no other gods before him so that meant that you put yourself in the you know, in the aim of the rifle of the government. You put yourself in, in their crosshairs. And so there was this widespread persecution that was going on. There were people being attacked, people being martyred and murdered because they were Christians. And Jesus saw that the suffering that they experienced was very real, it was very physical. They were being hurt. There was pain, it was going on. And not only that, they were being rejected Christians. When you came to know Christ, even if you were a Jew, you would come to Christ and the Jews would then cast you out of the synagogue, which was taking you out of a place of provision that there was for the Jews and protection and casting you out so that you no longer had the protection and that you were being persecuted by the Jews. You were being persecuted by the other religions. You were being persecuted by the cults. It was all of these things that were coming against the Christians who were being hunted down and martyred. And Jesus, he, he mentions one particular martyr, one of the very first martyrs that was not one of the apostles that was killed. Jesus talks about Antipas. We just read that. Antipas was a, uh, he was a pastor. He was a leader at the church at Pergamum. And what they did to, uh, to Antipas was they took a giant brass bowl and they slow cooked him in it. That's what they did to him. They, that's how they killed him. I, I, you know, thinking about it, what, what, you know what they did to him? They cooked him in a crock pot. That's what they did to this guy. And he was a member of the church. He was a, a leader of the church. And the people all saw this. The people were all aware of this. This guy was loved by the people. The people would have loved him and he served and Jesus is lifting him up in this and, and causing him to serve as a great testimony of faithfulness, a one who exalted Jesus Christ even above his own life because it cost him his own life. And in this, I find it again interesting that Jesus actually names him by name. On the island of Patmos, he names this guy by name and knows, Jesus knows that he was hunted down. He knows that he was martyred. He knows that he was murdered. He knows the persecution that this man went through. And he mentions him by name. 
And he's basically saying, hey, I know some of you, and you, some of you are not being faithful. But I want you to know that in the midst of that, there is a group of people that are in the light and the line of Antipas that are being faithful and standing up in this. And he lifts this man up and says, this is a man that was honorable. This is a man that walked in the ways in which Jesus walked. This is a leader that we can follow. And Jesus acknowledges that by mentioning his name. But you know what his name means? Antipas means one who suffers in the place of another. We'll talk more about this next week, but he talks about giving people a new name. And I believe that Antipas was his Christian name. And Antipas did what Jesus did. He laid down his life. He suffered for the good of others. He did it in place of others. And Jesus is an example He's talking about this place, and, he, and again, we'll look at Satan's throne is what he talks about. He knows that there's suffering in this physical way, but he also knows there's spiritual suffering that comes. He says a number of times, he says, this is where Satan has his throne. That's a strong statement. I mean, it doesn't just say this is where, you know, demons dwell. He's, this is where Satan has his throne. This is a center for activity. I mean, this is a a center where the the demonic is just strong, and it's really flowing hard and and against the people. And and so even like what we talked about, this place that was down the hill, the Asclepian, the healing center, they had these oracles that people would come to and want their dreams to be interpreted, and these people would conjure up the spirits and begin to interpret dreams, which basically they were shamans. Shamans, they were involved in the occult. These were magic, these were demonic activities. They were the the astrologers and the dream readers of the day. And people would come from all over the place to come see this eclectic group of demonically inspired leaders. And people were coming from all over to see these people. They were coming to the altar of Zeus. Now again, Jesus said, you're suffering because in this place is where Satan has his throne. I, I wonder if the altar of Zeus was that place. I wonder if that's the altar that he was talking about. The altar of Zeus was a thousand feet up. It was the, the very top of, of the Acropolis. And the, you could see the entire valley from that area, but the entire valley could see the temple or the, the altar of Zeus. Archaeologists, as they began to dig this up, they uh, just as a side note, Adolf Hitler, actually, when he came through Turkey in World War II, he destroyed much of this area. But one thing that he did was he took, had architects take renderings of the temple of, or the altar of Zeus and wanted to recreate that where he could put his own altar. And today, there actually is in the Pergamum Museum in Germany, there is the mission of the altar of Zeus. But even Adolf Hitler made it a point to preach from the altar of Zeus that was there in Pergamum. I mean, obviously, historically, there's an ongoing demonic activity that flows from this place. So where is the throne of Satan? Was it the temple or the altar of Zeus? Or was it the image of the emperor who had declared himself to be Lord God and Savior? 
You know what? I don't know. Could have been any of them. The point is, is that there was a lot of passionate worship in this place. And it wasn't to the God of the Bible. There, there were people who would travel from miles and miles and miles to find spiritual healing and consultation and alcohol and prostitution. But there wasn't a deep love for Jesus. And so he says to the church, he says, I know you're in a difficult place. I know the hardships that you're experiencing. I know that you're being opposed politically. I know that you're feeling the, exper- the, the physical attacks. I, I know that you're being opposed spiritually. I know there's suffering. I know there's persecution. I know that there are people in your church that have died, people that have been murdered, people that have been killed for the cause of Christ. I know what you're living up under. He sees, church. He knows when there's persecution. He's not left us alone. He's not left you alone. But then Jesus brings this rebuke. A rebuke of their beliefs and then, therefore, their behaviors. He he goes through all of this and then tells them how he's displeased and that there's correction and there's rebuke that he brings to the people. And again, this is really, really important for us to understand. We have to be able to receive a rebuke. If we can't receive a rebuke, we can't really, if we can't receive a rebuke, we can't be Christians. It starts with that. And so there's this rebuke that comes, and and again, it becomes easy sometimes for us when life is difficult, when life is hard, when we're feeling the pressure of being a Christian. We're in an area where there's persecution that comes. People are hating us. It becomes easy when we're lost because of our Christianity, or we've lost family members. Maybe you lost a marriage. Maybe there's been consequences in your life because you're a Christian that have made things really, really difficult. And sometimes when we're going through that, it becomes easier in us to begin to think we have, well, you know, I've been through so much, we can give ourselves permission to live it up a little. We can give ourselves permission to sin, to rebel. And Jesus is saying in this letter, no, no. Persecution does not give us the right or privilege to begin to go contrary to the word of God, to just go ahead and sin because we want to or we think that we deserve it. No. Jesus is saying, hey, I acknowledge, I understand, I see what kind of city you live in. I know the complexity of your life. I know the things that are happening and the things that you're, you're having to live in and minister in. I see all of that. But he's saying, I, I does not excuse your rebellion and your sin. And he comes along and he rebukes them. He corrects them. And he does it on behalf of, on, on part of their belief system. And he does it because of their behavior. And the beliefs, in that, the belief is that these people, they had a problem. And the problem was that there was a spirit of Balaam in the church. Spirit of Balaam. Balaam, you can read about that. I'm not going to go back through all of that. But Balaam was an Old Testament false prophet. He was a false prophet that encouraged false doctrine, encouraged sexual sin. And he said, you know, there were, there were, Jesus was saying there's people in the city. And let me tell you, there's people in every city like this. People who claim to belong to God, 
They claim to speak for God, but they teach things and they believe things that are contrary to the Bible. And church, when we teach things and believe things that are contrary to the Bible, oftentimes, more times than not, it leads to sexual immorality. How'd you tie that together? Look, you know what? I, as in every cult that I've studied, every cult that I've looked at, in every false religion, in every kind of, of distinct, you know, spirituality that's been formed, what you'll find is in every single one of them, it either started with or led to sexual sin being permitted by the leaders of that whatever it is. Sexual sin is at the foundation of so much struggle, church, that we see in our world, so much of what's going on. That's why back in this day, they had these temples with prostitutes. You know that they weren't just temple prostitutes, they were called priestess. And they were in these temples, and they were in the temple even at times, and they were, those who were, who were there, they were prostitutes. And people would come, and they would in, indulge in sexual sins, and they would call it a part of their, sec, their, their spiritual worship. And it was a part of that. And so he's saying it's like in the days of Balaam in the Old Testament, where there were false teachers that were encouraging sexual sin. False teachers that were encouraging things that were not truth, that were not biblical, that were not God's will. And these teachers were doing this, and the sad part is that the church got to a point where the church really didn't mind. And I'm going to lose some of you on this, but I'm going to just say it anyway because it's truth. There are certain denominations and certain churches today who say that heterosexual marriage is optional. Church, there are churches today that say that you know, there are other alternative lifestyles, that there are other alternative sexualities, that there are alternative sexes today, that there's all sorts of different sexual orientations that are perfectly acceptable in the sight of God. Now, again, I, I understand that there's a lot of controversy in this. But there's no controversy in this in Jesus' eyes. Jesus says, no, it's not okay. It's not acceptable in my sight. Because church, the same thing was happening here at Pergamum. They were entering into all sorts of, 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 of what they called to be Christian behaviors at that time that included these places of sexual perversion. And he brought all of these into this. And Jesus is saying, no. In fact, he's saying, it's demonic. It's from the throne of Satan. False. It's wrong beliefs. Even though it may seem diverse and tolerant. Again, it's what he's talking about here. That's what this whole thing, he's sharing with the church. And either we're going to try to conform the word to our personal belief, or we're going to let our personal beliefs be conformed to the word of God. Because then the next thing he does is he critiques their behavior. And man, their behavior 
was a lot of sexual sin. And that included fornication, people, people living, sleeping together before they're married, outside of marriage. There was adultery that was going on. Married people that were coming to the temple prostitutes, being unfaithful to the covenant that they'd made. The people were participating in all sorts of sexual sins that were going on in the city. The people in the church were joining together and mingling Christianity with culture. And this is what was happening. And Jesus says, that's unacceptable. No, it's not okay. That is unacceptable in the sight of God. And he rebukes them for it. And basically says, they're apostate. Apostate means professing a faith that they do not practice. Professing a faith they don't practice. That's someone who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but they live contrary to the teachings of the Bible. So what's happening here in this story, in this letter that he's writing to this church. It's what's going on in that day. But it's also what's happening in our day. We see it, you know, a, a young person can be baptized. They're, they're truly, oh, I've come to Christ and we want to be baptized. And they're baptized in water. They come to Christ and they, they're, they're walking after Christ. But as they grow older, they, they stop. They stop following Jesus. They stop living in a way that would honor the word of God or put the word of God first. They start walking in ways that are more cultural than Christian, but they would continue to say, if you asked them, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And, and, the, and the question has to be, though, in that, you know, and I'm not answering this question, but the question is, well, are you? I mean, that also happens when someone, you know, they, they're walking with Jesus, they're following Jesus, they're, with, they're, they're calling themselves a Christian, they are a Christian, they believe, they're following after the word of God, and then they stop. And they start walking off into sin, they go off into false doctrines, they go off into areas because of their own personal choices, take them away, and they purposely walk away from what they know to be the truth of the word of God. They fall astray. Well, what happens is people start to say, well, man, you know what? Were they a Christian or not? Church, that's way above my pay grade. Thank God he didn't put me in charge of deciding who's saved and who's not. <laughs> We'd all be in trouble. Lightning bolts everywhere. Jesus is the only one who makes that call. I understand that. and I'm, I'm telling you that. So don't take me out of context here but such people that choose to just walk away choose to make those decisions are apostate because they know exactly what they're doing yet they still continue to walk in open rebellion and this can be doctrinally doctrinally where we find parts of the bible that we don't like let me tell you there's parts of the bible that i don't like Simply because it rubs against the culture, it rubs against things. and it rubs, You know what, there's parts of it. I, God never said I had to like it all. He said I had to love it all. But his ways are higher than my ways. But doctrinally, we can find parts of the Bible that we don't like and then just begin to reject those teachings. Well, I like the Bible, but I don't like those teachings. And, and usually, underneath it all, you will almost always find this church, there's a moral cause, and it's often sexual. 
There's sexual issues, sexual problems, sexual sin, sexual things that lead to so much of this. That's why Romans 1, in Romans chapter 1, it says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they want to sin. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness, so they, they, they push down the truth in certain areas because of our unrighteousness and because we want to sin. So there's an area we want to sin in, so what do we do? We just neglect or suppress what the Word says in that area. And then Romans 1 continues to go on, read all of Romans 1, and it goes on to say that, that much of and many of and most of those sins are sexual in nature. Again, this whole thing, there's so much that have this that has to do with sexual sin. And let me tell you, this letter was written 2,000 years ago, but the human heart is still the same. We still struggle in these same areas. And church, I, I, I dare to say that for many, it's not that we don't know the truth. It's that we don't like it. It's not that we don't understand the Bible. We just want something different. And the people at Pergamum, they were saying that, you know, hey, all of these mixes and matches, you know what? This is kind of cool because I get to say it, but I get to believe whatever it is I want to believe, and I get to do whatever it is I want to do, and I get to behave in any way I want to behave. This is awesome. And Jesus says, I see it all. I know it all. And no, it's not okay. Jesus is confronting them here. He's saying no. Does Jesus have the right to tell you no? But do we listen? Hmm. Not when it feels good. Not when it's what I want. Jesus, we're all good until you, until you mess with my want. And then we're going to have some problems here. Worship team, would you come back up? You know, apostasy is tragic. Do you know, and we'll talk more about this next week, do you know that in this area, Pergamum, Pergamos, do you know that today there's not even a church in the entire area? We'll, we'll, again, uh, we'll talk more about this, but when I look at that, it's like, man, did apostasy win? Look, church, it, it can very easily overtake us. It can very easily slip in if we don't learn how to rightly divide the word of God, if we don't remain teachable, if we don't let God speak to us. You know, there was one of the most painful stories of apostasy that, that I know, and I just want to share this with you because I, I think it might relate. There was a guy that was in our church years ago, and the guy was a great guy. I loved the guy. You know, I, we had gone to different events together and different things together, and, and he had been at a big church that, that he had interned at earlier in his life, and he was a, a guy who just loved the Lord, served 
taught Sunday school, helped with children's ministries, helped in all these different areas and different places. He had even preached a couple of times. And, um, and, and this guy had a, a wonderful wife. She was a godly, godly woman. She was a really nice woman. They were just seemed so perfect together. And one day, he just, out of nowhere, or it's seemingly out of nowhere, came to his wife and said, I want a divorce. I don't want to be married anymore. I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't want to do this. I don't want to follow this, and I don't want to live this way. I want to go out. I want to be with other women. I want to do whatever it is I want to do. And I met with him and talked to him. See, hey, but do you know what the Word says about this? Yeah, he knew the Word. He knew what the Word said. I asked him, do you know Jesus? You know who he is? Yeah, he, had, he knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew exactly what Jesus was supposed to mean to him. I said, well, so what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to divorce my wife and I'm going to start running around and doing whatever I want to do. I'm going to start chasing women. I'm going to, I don't need the church. I don't have to do that. I don't need church to worship God. I can worship him wherever I want, doing whatever I want. And that's exactly what he did. He went out and did that. But today, I think, I, again, I, I would assume, if you asked him, are you a Christian? He would say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. If you asked him about Scripture, he, I mean, he can tell you the Scriptures. If you tried to debate theologically with him, man, he might even win. But church, there was no real love for Jesus there. He had put himself in that place of idol where what he wanted was more important than what Jesus desired to do and he was today living as an apostate now again whether he's a Christian or not I don't, I don't know I, I'm not the one that makes those decisions only Jesus knows that only Jesus makes those decisions but church this is what was going on though in the city of Pergamum. This is what he's writing this letter to. Lots of apostasy and leaders that were teaching false doctrine, that were combining together Christianity and culture, combining together the word of God and the word of, of, of just man, and being led astray. And there's this apostasy that's going on. And there are lots of people that were there, there they were saying, you know what, we like this version of Christianity. There's a lot of people today, you know what? That's the version of Christianity that I like. That's the one I accept because it doesn't command me to repent. I get to be a Christian and do whatever I want to do. I get to be a Christian and say whatever it is I want to say because this kind of, this form, my form, this sort of false teaching, it lets my lifestyle be tolerated and, and it affirms my lifestyle church in that in that kind of a situation God hates it because no longer in that kind of a situation no longer do we exist to bring glory and honor to God but God exists 
to do what we want and to let us behave the way we want. To make it what we want. And to get to the place where we can even convince ourselves that God gave me permission to live this way. Church, that is unacceptable in the eyes of God. If that's crept in, Jesus says, repent! Repent! Turn from your wicked ways. Draw near unto me and I will draw near unto you. He says, repent, because there are consequences if we don't. Please remember, this is not an Old Testament letter. This is New Testament letter written to a New Testament spirit-filled church. And he says, repent. Repent. Have you let some of these things creep in? Wouldn't be hard. It isn't hard in the culture that we live in today. But we still have to stand on every word, the word of God. It is our rock. It is our foundation. It is what we place our life on. It is what we place our life in. And even if we are persecuted and martyred to the point of death, he says, I will not leave you. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is a light to us. It is a lamp. It is, uh, Lord, uh, it is our strength. It is the shield that you've given us. It is the double-edged sword. And Lord, I, I, don't, I want you to come and to separate those things that are of flesh from those things that are of spirit. But Lord God, not to bring judgment. And God, I tell you today, Lord, if there's areas in me that need change, that need to be transformed, that need to come into the light, then God, I put them into your hands. Change my mind, Lord. Change my view. Change me today, Lord. I repent. If, if your church, if you're involved in something that's outside of what God declares to be in his word, what is acceptable, repent. Repent. That's what he's calling. That's what he's desiring. Lay it down. I promise you it's not worth it. Have your way, Lord. Have your way. Right now, every sure. burden, every cloud. This is my surrender. And this is my surrender. And here is where I lay it down. Every lie and every doubt. And this is my surrender. And I will make room. Sing it out. Tell him. To do whatever you want to. To do whatever you want.
happen to us there's some things that God's laid on my heart how how can this happen how did it happen to them how can this happen to us and then again you know this, the good news of what he says at the end we're gonna talk about the new name and the white stone it's a, it, it's a it's a wonderful wonderful teaching that God gives us in his word so we're gonna put it all together and I, I promise God has a blessing for us, each and every one of us. Amen. Church, I love you. Go out, be the church. Go be those that God has redeemed. Go be those that God has placed his hand upon. Go be the church. Church is not over. Church is about to begin. Go be the church. Come on, let's sing this as we go.